0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and 34 to 37, and we're going to go through the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I did want to say, last week I purposefully misstated the river that George Washington crossed to try and see if any of you were paying attention and willing to call me out. Uh, Some people were paying attention and did gleefully call me out on that, Uh, and that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I didn't make a mistake, it was a willful test. So, but we're going to look today at uh, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 3 and 34 to 37. So, I encourage you now, hear the word of the sovereign God. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And then at the end of chapter four, this is at the end of his letter. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, My honor and splendor will return to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble When I was a uh, young boy, uh, America went through a thing uh, in the early 70s known as Watergate, where quite a number of people around President Nixon were convicted as conspirators for they had broken into the Watergate Hotel trying to get information that would help make sure the Republican Party would be able to uh, win the next election. And one of the people that was implicated and became very, very famous was a man named Chuck Colson. Chuck was proud, He was strong, he was a prior Marine, he was also brutal. Colson had famously stated, I would walk over my own grandmother to re-elect Nixon. And he meant it, he was that kind of a man. His nickname was Nixon's hatchet man. If you made President Nixon angry, Chuck Colson was the bulldog that was set after you, and he would set out to destroy you. And as far as he was concerned, everything was fair game. Colson was not really directly implicated in Watergate, but because he was part of the administration, he was caught up as kind of a co-conspirator on the side, and it threw his life into crisis. Suddenly, this proud, arrogant, strong, brutal man found himself being humbled and his life crumbling around him. And as he recounted in what became a bestseller known as Born Again, he went to visit a friend one day, uh, and the friend, unbeknownst to him, had become a Christian. And the friend loaned him a book named Mere Christianity by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And Colson recounts, he sat in his car reading Lewis's arguments for the gospel, and he said, as a lawyer, I began to break out in a sweat thinking if I had to face this guy in court, his logic was so precise, he would slice me up. And Colson found himself in tears, repenting and crying out to God for forgiveness. Uh, many people at the time, Washington Post and others, made editorial cartoons that were jokes about Colson's foxhole conversion, this isn't serious, this guy's doing this to try and get empathy. But interestingly enough, Colson went to jail and then came out of it and founded Prison Fellowship, which is one of the largest ministries to prisoners in the world. And until the day he died, Colson was a champion for the gospel, for prisoners, uh, for those who were even downtrodden and found themselves in trouble. It's an amazing story. And I bring it up because if you've been following us through the book of Daniel, you might have been shocked by the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four sounds a lot different than Nebuchadnezzar of chapter two or even chapter three that we looked at last week. What in the world happened to this man? That's what we're going to dig into today. Now the story, chapter four is actually a letter that Nebuchadnezzar uh, had written and sent out and so the first few verses are just his greeting. But then it jumps into a story. And Nebuchadnezzar tells us in verses 4 and 5 that he was in a time of prosperity. Tells us in verse, uh, verse 4, I was contented and I was prosperous in my palace. He doesn't tell us the date, but this is probably late in Nebuchadnezzar's reign because it appears that nobody's giving him trouble anymore. Everybody has accepted that he is ruler of what, as far as they know, is the entire world. Um, And Babylon, as we're going to see, is extensively built up. And we know Nebuchadnezzar for a period of some 20 years or so did extensive construction in Babylon. So this is probably late in his reign. Um, But suddenly, in the midst of this peace, Nebuchadnezzar reverts all the way back to chapter 2. He has a dream one night. And it's again a troubling dream. The circumstances are different. In chapter 2, he's probably he's a young leader. He's new in his reign. He's being beset by problems from other rulers. You can understand why he might have a troubling dream. Here, everything has settled down. Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I've accomplished it. It's done. My, my troubles are in my past. And then suddenly, he's invaded by this dream one evening. And this proud, strong king now finds himself terrified. That's his word. It it terrified me what was going through my mind. So Nebuchadnezzar calls the wise men of Babylon, but this time it's not like chapter two. He doesn't tell them to figure out what the dream is. He's already been through that before. This time he tells them the content of the dream, and the wise men of Babylon, to no surprise by this point, fail again. Now, they may have failed because they couldn't figure out what the dream is, That seems kind of hard because probably most of us could look at the dream and have a pretty good idea what it means. Uh, It's probably they can figure out what it means and they're terrified because it's like, yeah, this is bad news and we do not want to be the bearer of bad news. See Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter (laughs) 3. Bad things happen when you get on this guy's bad side. So we don't want to tell him what this dream means. for whatever reason, Nebuchadnezzar digs back into his past and says, I know what to do. I go to Daniel. And he tells us in verses 8 and 9 that he gets Daniel to come into his presence. Now, a couple of things are interesting here. First note, he refers to Daniel as Daniel, which is interesting. Because remember, he had named Daniel, he had renamed him, part of the identity formation we talked about in Daniel chapter 1. Here, the great king, for the first time in the book, refers to Daniel not as Belteshazzar, but as Daniel by his Hebrew name. Secondly, notice he says that the spirit of the holy gods is, uh, are in him, that, that, and and as a Jew, you could read this in Aramaic because gods, the word for gods could be the singular God if it refers to the God of Israel. There's kind of a, a, a mixed thing here. But what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, is, look, I'm smart enough to realize I don't know everything about God. And, and notice he refers to him again as Belteshazzar, which is the name that Daniel would be known by, by everybody in Babylon. They would know him as Belteshazzar. But he says, but here's what I know something's different about this guy. I may not have all my theology worked out, but I know one thing, Daniel's different than everybody else around him. Daniel has proven to me that he's in touch somehow with the God of heaven that all my other wise men or not. And so clearly we're learning here that Daniel has real stature in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. But quite honestly, this early in the letter, it doesn't appear, we're not sure that Nebuchadnezzar still seems to be confused regarding who God is, the true nature of God, but he does know, he knows somebody who's not confused, and that's Daniel, and he turns to Daniel. Now then what we find out, and I'm going through this a little bit quickly because it's a lot of information, but it's you know, a fairly well-known story too. We find out the content of the dream. In verses 10 to 12, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, hey, uh, O Belteshazzar, this is what I saw. And the content of the dream is basically this. I looked and there was this tree, but it's an unusual tree. It's enormous, this tree is. In fact, it reaches up to the sky. Its height reaches to the sky. Now, in teaching us how to read the scripture, let's remember, can you think of anything else ever in a place like Babel where something was trying to reach up to the sky? Okay, Note this, remember, back in the very first verses of the book, they're going away to the plain of Shinar, which is where the Tower of Babel was. The, the NIV translates it as Babylon, but the actual phrase is, it's going back to Shinar. There's, there's these allusions that God keeps giving back to before he had even called Abraham. But this tree is enormous, And it reaches to the sky, and the whole world can see it. Now, here's just a little tip for you. When you're reading apocalyptic things like Daniel and Revelation, if you try and take the vision literally, you're going to get yourself in real trouble. They're smart enough to know, can a tree grow tall enough that the whole world can see it? Answer, no. And they're well aware of that back then, just like we are now. That's not the point. The point of the dreams isn't, how would this work? What, how would this animal have all these different parts? That's not the point of the dream. It's trying to convey a message. And here's the message. This tree is massive. And this was very common in the ancient world. Kingdoms and rulers would be represented in the ancient world to show their ruler. And Nebuchadnezzar seeing one that is so massive, the entire world, can see this tree and in fact it's full of leaves it's full of abundant fruit animals take cover in it they're being fed by it this tree seems to be the center of creation this is the content of the dream and Nebuchadnezzar's probably smart enough because this was very common back then to think well I'm that tree I'm the ruler of, like, everything I can see. Everybody knows who I am. Everybody is fed by me at one level or another. I, I reach out and rule the kingdoms. So far, so good. Well, why is Nebuchadnezzar terrified? Well, that's the next part of the dream that he gets to. In verses 13 to 15, he tells us, well, I'm laying there, I'm looking at it, and then all of a sudden, a a holy one comes down from heaven. He actually uses the word watcher. Some English translations will have that, but it appears to be some kind of an angelic being. And it comes down from heaven and it says, cut the tree down. And as this happens, all the animals start fleeing away from the tree. Now, one does not have to be trained in Babylonian interpretation of dreams to say, yeesh, this doesn't seem like a good turn in the dream. This is kind of bad news. The tree gets cut down, but we're told the stump is going to remain. It's going to stay there, and in some form or fashion, it's going to be protected by bands of iron and bronze. And they're not exactly sure if that means a fence around it, but somehow it seems like it's going to be protected. And so there's a question, maybe there's a little bit of hope, but this is the part of the dream that is terrifying Nebuchadnezzar, but it gets worse. Because if one had wondered if the tree would refer to an individual, notice that in verse 15 at the end of the verse, it turns from speaking of a tree to clearly speaking of a human being. It says, let him, we've swapped metaphors because in apocalyptic visions, they do this. Suddenly, in essence, the tree has turned into a person. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man uh, and to an animal till seven times pass by for him. So clearly at this point in the dream, even again if you're not trained, you're like, okay, I can figure this out. We're talking about a person. The tree represented a person and the person is being cut down to size. But it appears that the being cut down to size means His mind's being turned to that of an animal. He's going to go away from people. He's going to start somehow living like an animal. He's going to be given the mind of an animal. Now, if you're a human being, I don't care where you are in life. That's humiliating. I mean, that, if I told you, God sent an angel and told me, Starting tomorrow, you're gonna think like an animal and you're gonna act like an animal. Nobody would say, well, this sounds like fun. We'd be horrified. And this is what's going on in the dream. And we're told it's going to last for seven times. This isn't gonna happen for an afternoon. Now the phrase, some translations say seven years. The actual word is seven times. Sometimes that's used for years, but it could be used for days, weeks, months, years, Or it could be, if you've read much in the Bible, the number of seven is a number of completion, fullness. It could be saying, you're going to be turned to an animal. It's going to be for a long time. And you're going to stay that way until the reason I'm doing this is fulfilled. Until it is accomplished. Because the point, notice at the end of verse uh, 17 there, is... Uh, this is being done so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone who wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. So the tree that the whole world was looking at is gonna be shown what it's really like. You're gonna be reduced to being an animal in the field and you're gonna discover whatever you had is not because you're glorious, but because I, the Lord, am glorious. And I just chose to give it to you. And I can give it to anybody I choose. And you're going to stay in this state until you realize this. Now, in verses, uh, starting after that, around verse 19, Daniel's going to interpret it. And it's kind of interesting because it goes into the third person. Because pretty soon, the dream's going to become fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar couldn't be dictating or writing what's happening. So, So we've kind of gone from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective to now suddenly it's a third-person perspective. And what we're told is Daniel is perplexed and his thoughts terrify him, which is back the same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts. Now, he's not perplexed because he doesn't know what's going on. The word can really be kind of like he's fearful. He's kind of anxious about it. And the reason is, because Daniel knows what the dream is, he's going to interpret it in just a second. He doesn't like the message. He's terrified by the message, and I don't even think it's because Daniel's afraid of what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. Anybody who's been through Daniel two, and then with his fr- friends uh, Rad Shack and Benny, I-, I was told by everybody I should have brought up Veggie Tales last week. So, so Rad Shack and Benny, for the Veggie Tales fans, have gone through. If you're Daniel, you're not worried what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do at this point. But notice, it, we're told he doesn't want to tell it, and. I know it's Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, is perplexed. And Nebuchadnezzar sees it and he realizes what's going on and he says, Look, I want you to tell me the truth. Tell me what you know it means. And Daniel, now picture this. You were a young teenager in Jerusalem, you were probably in the royal family. You were being groomed to serve the kingdom that you were part of and the kingdom that you love, and the land you love, serving the God you love. And a guy named Nebuchadnezzar shows up and he rips you from your home. He takes you away. He tries to strip away your identity. He gives you a different name, forces you to be called by that. He threatens to kill you and all the other wise men because people can't figure out a dream. He's taken three of your friend in anger, thrown them into a furnace and tried to burn them to death. And now you're being told this guy's going to be humbled. What would your reaction be? I'm gonna be honest, I think some Christians have started doing a hallelujah dance. But Daniel's is not that way. He's full of compassion and he actually says, "'My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies.'" Do you see the compassion of Daniel? Do you understand? He's got compassion on this man. Just as a passing point for you and I, God's exile people always have to have compassion even for those who are persecuting us, even for those who are causing us trouble, for those who look differently, think differently, vote differently, despise the things you love. Do you have compassion? Do I have compassion? Now, I'm gonna be honest. I've I've grown in this. When I was young, I was, yeah, I'm like Elijah Elijah calling fire out of heaven, calling the bears down to eat the ewes. That's the call I want, okay? That's the way I was. I was a young Marine. That kind of sunk into my blood a little bit, okay? That's not the kingdom, It's really, really not the kingdom. You remember, James and John, they were like, hey, we read that in the Old Testament, we like that. Lord, should we call fire out of heaven? Because the people had rejected Jesus, who, by the way, is more important than you and me, okay? More important than even the church, more important than America. Jesus was rejected, and the response of James and John is, Lord, should we call fire down of heaven? As if they could do that on their own. We watch them bumble and stumble around. But they're pretty confident they can do that. And what was Jesus' response? What what are you talking about? What, What spirit are you from? Do you think I came here to do that? I came to have mercy on these people. They are lost. Is that our response? Is that our response? Because, friends, I can tell you this. Your sins deserve to be thrown into the fire. So do mine. Your sins deserve to have you treated like an animal. And so do mine. So to watch somebody come under that sentence, if we do it with glee, am I I contemplating the gospel daily, recognizing the mercy that is mine in Christ? Because if I do, I want that mercy to be extended to everyone. I, I, I hope I remember a couple of years ago. Now You've got you to remember, folks. Okay, at 17, I came to the school over here. I went into the Marine Corps, and my wife will tell you. I mean, I, I, I could call some fire down on some people. I remember the day I found out Osama bin Laden had been captured and killed. My first thought before God was not, Yes! My first thought was, I hope somehow that man repented. I hope somehow he responded to the gospel. Because I don't want that on my worst enemy. Not a fan of Osama bin Laden. Attacking a lot of things I love. But mercy and compassion. Here ended me getting on my soapbox. I'll get back to the story. So... Daniel now has to explain the dream. And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar what we might already expect. You, O king, are the tree. You are actually great and strong. You are great, you are strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, the things you have thought, they're actually true. You you are exalted like that. You have been raised up. You are mighty among men. Nebuchadnezzar is great. That's not his problem. His problem is he knows it. His problem is he thinks that about himself. He doesn't recognize that he was chosen by God. He was raised up, and God could have raised up his servants. God could have raised up the king of Judah to strike down Babylon had he wanted to. So Daniel confirms this, but the problem is there. And so he tells him, here's what the dream means. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are going to become like an animal. You're going to be driven away from people. Apparently, the mind of an animal is what it said back in the dream in verse 16, the, the message he heard. And it means you're going to begin to think like an animal, and you're going to begin to act like an animal. Now, We might say, well, that's just because it's apocalyptic language, except in this case, we know it's actually not. We know it's gonna become true. It is actually a known disease. It's called zoanthropy, or sometimes called lycanthropy. Those are from Greek words, one meaning animal, human, and the other meaning wolf, human, from which we actually develop the myths of werewolves. Because there are human beings who actually do this, and not just in the ancient world. We have records, not just of Nebuchadnezzar, not just of people in the ancient world. We have records of people right down to the modern time that sometimes are afflicted with the brain disease and they begin to think they're an animal. They begin to act like an animal. It's, a, it's another thing that you call for compassion. If you are denying who you are as a human being, whatever way you're denying that, it's a tragic thing. Pray. For the person who's doing that. And that's exactly what goes on here with Nebuchadnezzar. He's doing this, and notice it's gonna last so long that Nebuchadnezzar is gonna start looking like an animal. Your hair is gonna grow down, and the only way ne- that Daniel can describe it is you're gonna, it's gonna start looking like feathers on you. It's gonna become so long. You're just gonna become this, this covered person. Your nails are gonna grow so long, and unkempt, they're gonna start curling. So this is why we know this didn't go on for seven days. It didn't go on for seven weeks. It took a long time for this to happen. And you're going to be out living like a lowly animal. And Nebuchadnezzar, this is going to happen until finally you accept the humbling of God and you accept that God is most high, not you. And God could pick and choose anyone he wanted and raise them up to be king. You were blessed. By being chosen for him don't get bigger than your britches that's basically what the message is and that's what's going to happen to you nebuchadnezzar you're going to learn that your power and your success are not due to your inherent worth but rather to the choice of god and if you know that you know god can humble you at any time just another lesson for us on the side friends whatever you have is the gift of god If you've ever traveled around the world, you could realize you could be born in abject poverty in a country full of illiteracy, and I don't care how hard you work and all these other things you possibly would do, your life would be wildly different than what it is. You and I could have been born in a village with no access to the gospel of Christ. It is the gift of God. Everything we have. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to learn this. And notice what Daniel does that's very interesting. This is not part of the dream. Daniel Daniel calls for Nebuchadnezzar to repent so he can avert the disaster. There's nothing in the dream that if you repent, this isn't going to happen. Just like with Jonah, by the way, there was nothing that if Nineveh repented, it would avert the disaster. That's always implicit in God's call for repentance. So notice what Daniel says is... I got compassion on you, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not just gonna proclaim the word. I'm gonna tell you what you need to do. Again, as believers, we don't just proclaim the gospel and utter the warnings of God's law. We do it with compassion and we tell people, there is an opening. When you hear the law of God, there is the gospel of God. Turn to him and that's what daniel does like a prophet he shows nebuchadnezzar the way out of danger friends christians in our proclamation of the gospel have to have clear compassion and love for those who do not yet believe and it should be easy because there was a time that i was a mocker and for many of you in here there was as well so we're called to do that and notice what he says he says nebuchadnezzar you're being judged because you're arrogant humble yourself how do you do that i want you to repent the actual phrase uh the niv has renounced it's literally to break them off like you would break a yoke off of someone break off your sins what he means is repent And you're gonna do this by doing the opposite. You have despised the lowly, now you're gonna humble yourself and you're gonna help out the lowly. You're gonna find the poor, you're gonna find the oppressed in your kingdom and you're gonna give yourself to serving them. And if you do that, it'll show God, you've learned the lesson and he won't have to do this to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Please hear. Now friends, this is not salvation by works. First off, he's not proclaiming how to become a Christian. He's telling them how to avert this disaster. But secondly, this is actually part of preaching the gospel the same way. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 puts it this way. For those in Damascus, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. If you find out I've Kidnap somebody and I've got them locked up in my basement, and you're like, Brett, repent of your sins. I say, I've repented. Did you let them out of the basement? No, they're still there. What does that tell you? I haven't repented. It's very easy, you'll know when I've repented when I let the person free, okay? And so he's saying, same thing that Paul says. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you've been arrogant. The way I know you've repented, you've really seen your arrogance, is when you humble yourself and you start helping other people. So the decree has been announced, but there's time for Nebuchadnezzar to avert the disaster. Will he? Now Again, we know the story, but if you're watching it for the first time, that's a question, will he listen? Because you remember in Nineveh, what did they do? I mean, Nineveh took Jonah so seriously, you remember? They not only got in in sackcloth and ashes, they put their cows in sackcloth and ashes, which is pretty hysterical. Okay, they were even like, look, we're going to repent. We're going to make our cows repent. We don't know who did what, but we're just going to cover all our bases. Okay, will Nebuchadnezzar do the same? Will he respond? Well, sadly, no. The word did not humble him, so God will bend his back. We read that 12 months later, this is in verses 29 and 30, 12 months later. Now, we're not told... Was God patient and Nebuchadnezzar continued, as it were, using international sign language towards God and telling him, go your own way. I don't care what you think. Did he do that for 12 months and God was just patient? Did Nebuchadnezzar pretend to respond for a period of time? We don't know. We just know that 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon and he says, is this not Babylon the Great? that the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and by the glory of my majesty. Now he's looking at Babylon and pride wells up and you got to understand, Babylon was a wonder of the world. In fact, it was so great and this was all done by Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody talked about Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar was king and he had started all these building projects. The wall was so massive that ran around the entire city that chariots could ride on the wall. And in fact, it was wide enough for a chariot to turn around and start going the other way. Nobody had seen a wall like this. And we know this, not from biblical records, from all kinds of other records. The the, um, hanging gardens, Nebuchadnezzar had brought a wife in from the Persian empire. She was used to all kinds of vegetation that was not there in Babylon. So he said, well, you know, I can make it happen. And he did, and he created these hanging gardens on the walls that were considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Everybody wrote about them. The city was so great, a hundred years after it had fallen, the Greek historian Herodotus went there and said, I was in awe just looking at what was left of its glory. Again, it's right, Babylon is glorious. The problem is, notice how Nebuchadnezzar says it, I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. If you want to see a sentence that sums up pride, that is a really good definition right there. That's a really good definition. So he utters this in pride, and immediately we read in verse 31 the words were still on his lips you got to picture it. If this is a movie, he's speaking, he's saying, look what I have. And he starts sounding like an animal as he goes through the sentence. And by the time he's done, he's down on all fours rooting around. That is a terrible sentence. And he's driven off, we're told, from human beings. He thinks, he acts, he looks like an animal. The proud king is reduced to a lowly beast. He becomes the incarnation of Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. One commentator said it this way, a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is truly is only a human being. That's exactly what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the amazing thing is, at the end of this seven times, we don't know how long it lasted. Again, might be seven years, uh, but for a significant period of time. And interestingly enough, in case you're wondering, the records for Nebuchadnezzar are pretty extensive in the early part of his reign, and then we come to a part of his reign where there's very little written about him. We don't know Why? but there's very little written about him in the secular records of Babylon. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar says, notice in verse 34, and then in verse 36, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. He can't pray directly because he's like an animal. But he can do this. He raises his eyes to heaven. And he's apparently recognizing you're supreme, I am not. I accept it, I am broken. And at that moment, he says, my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. And that's the words we read where he says, God's everything and all the peoples of the earth are as nothing. This is what Nebuchadnezzar has done. He has been Finally, when he gets to the place of humility, he is ultimately exalted. Because notice he says, at the same time that my sanity is restored, my honor and the splendor uh, were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. They brought me back. I was raised back to my place. If you want to see, again, an incarnation where Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It is Nebuchadnezzar. He is restored. And his words there, notice, that they, they show that he has recognized that God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. Pr- uh, pride has given way to praise. You know when your pride is being crushed when you can focus on God and give praise to him. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? I have just a couple of questions and we'll come to the Lord's table. First question. Do I know that God is the sovereign ruler of all? And in doing this, I'm going to be putting up the words that Nebuchadnezzar wrote in response to all of this. Nebuchadnezzar says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his humbling, recognizes and praises the absolute sovereignty of God, and he's clear. God is sovereign over heaven, and he's sovereign over earth. He is sovereign with nations. He is sovereign over individuals, and his purposes will be done in human history. Now, that is an unpopular message today. We think God is sovereign, as long as it doesn't cross my free will. Let me give you a bit of bad news. Your will does not rule the universe, nor does mine. There are other humans could bend your will. God rules over all, all the nations. And no one, you know, you hear the arrogant people, well, on Judgment Day, God's got some things he's gonna have to answer to me. Yeah, it's not gonna be that way. You're gonna be hugging the dust, and so will I. I will be crying out for mercy, and so will everyone else. There's not gonna be arrogance that day. Our eyes are gonna be peeled back, and we're gonna realize who we are dealing with and that's exactly what nebuchadnezzar says do i understand that do i acknowledge and do you notice this this at least formerly pagan king i'll come back to that not only recognizes the sovereignty of god he praises god for it you are so sovereign you turned me into a beast and i give you glory for doing that do you recognize the sovereignty of God? Do I recognize it and do I praise God that he is sovereign? See, that's a deep question. Can I worship God for his absolute sovereignty? Do I acknowledge that and celebrate God's sovereign rule over the nations today? I have said before, and I will say again, Christians ought to be the last people that ever are fretting over the latest election results or whatever other things are going on. Friends, God rules. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying don't get politically involved. I'm not saying don't, we we need to be engaged. It's a privilege we have been given. But what I will not do is I will not fret because God rules rules he raises nebuchadnezzar up and he puts nebuchadnezzar down and no one is outside the sovereignty of god i do not know what the future holds i absolutely don't but i know it holds this jesus is on the throne he is ruling he is reigning our future is heading exactly where god has intended from the dawn of time god doesn't do plan b there's plan a he can accomplish his will I need plan B. I need plan C. I need plan D. I got all these contingencies because I don't have the power to pull it off. He does. Do I recognize that? Do I celebrate that? Do I acknowledge God's sovereignty over individuals, including me? You know, a few years ago, we went through the seven root vices. I won't delve deeply into this, but Every one of the root vices, what some people refer to as the seven deadly sins, they're all about me not being happy with the way God's running things. I'm envious because why would you give Marty the ability to play the guitar? I want to play the guitar like that. Why, why can I say that to God? Why did you do what you've done? You distribute gifts as you will. Pride is, I think I'm God. Anger, this one was hard for me because I did have an anger problem. I've got all kinds of bent up things to prove it. And you know what's the root of my anger? How dare you run the universe the way you're running it right? I don't like what's going on. And I'm not big enough to punch at you, so I'll punch something else. Now that sounds childish, doesn't it? And I'm not really that way. I'm just making all that up. My family can tell you otherwise. See, see that's an anger and, and what's humbling is when I realize it's an expression, I don't like the way God's running my life. And I'm gonna stomp my feet and act like a child. That's why we do the things we do, friends. Do you see, acknowledge, and celebrate the sovereignty of God? And if you think for a moment that might be hard, contemplate what it would be like if you or I were running the universe not a pretty picture. Second, do I have hope for the unbelievers for whom I am praying? Do I have hope for unbelievers for whom I am praying? Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 34 and 37. At the end of the time, I raise my eyes towards heaven, my sanity is restored. Then I praise the most high. I honored and I glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then in verse 37, the very last lines of his letter: Now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything He does is right uh, and all His ways are just. What if you were Daniel standing there? I mean, I gotta say, I would have probably said, well, "I have been praying for this day, but I, I mean, wow." God actually listened to my prayer. I mean, what a shock. How different is this than the Nebuchadnezzar we've been reading about through this whole book? Now, let me say, I don't know if he's fully converted. I'm gonna give my thoughts on all of that in after hours. So if you want on Tuesday, you can watch the little short video and I'll talk about it. But I know this, these are hopeful words and they certainly sound like one who has come to true faith. I praise, I glorify, I honor. I'm calling you all to join me in praising and honoring and glorifying this God. All his ways are right. Everything he does is just. This had to be encouraging to Daniel. And I wanna encourage this message for you and I. Think for a moment. The person you think that is in your sphere of people you care for, that you relate to, that you're praying for, the person that you think there's just no way think about that. And then I want you to look at Nebuchadnezzar. God was able to humble this pagan king and accomplish this in his life. Friends, if you and I are praying and laboring to reach the people around us, even when they seem far from God, even at the moment, they may be crawling around and acting like an animal. God may be about to restore their sanity. He was mine. I mean, about as drunk and high as I ever got was two days before I got saved. I mean, I was out of my mind. And then two days later, I was restored to sanity by the sovereignty of God. Have hope. No one, no one. Again, Do you think Christians, I mean, what did the Christians react like when they heard Saul of Tarsus had converted? You remember, you read in the book of Acts, they were like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, we're glad to hear that. Keep him far away from us. This guy's getting people killed. Nobody would have picked Saul as the next convert. But he was. Because when God wants to put you off the horse, he puts you off the horse. Have hope. No one is outside the grace of God. No one. Last question, we'll come to the Lord's table, last point. Am I walking in pride or humility? Notice verse 37 where it goes. At the end, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I wish it says those who weren't Christians and walk in pride, he is able to humble. But it doesn't say that. It just says if you're a person who's walking in pride, he can And the subtext of the story is, he will humble you. Is it possible for me as a believer to walk in pride? Remember, Jesus put it this way in Luke 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus spoke about this a lot. Do we recognize this? We are so tempted to pride. We all like to walk around in our private little walled enclosure and say, look at what I have built. Don't lie to me. You're tempted to that. So am I. Human beings are so given over to this. But you want to know what wisdom is? Humbling yourself. Okay? And I remind you of, you know, the quip, some have said it was Lewis, C.S. Lewis apparently was not, but, you know, humility's not thinking less of yourself, humility is just thinking of yourself less. Just put your focus on other people. Remember, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was told to do. Just start finding the poor, finding the oppressed, finding those who need help and help them. And if you put your focus on them, you're not focusing on yourself. So, are we doing that? Am I walking in humility and pride? Or even better, I actually type this in my notes, even better than that question, where am I walking in pride? Because I'm not sure I've ever met a living, breathing human being that didn't have areas where pride was creeping up, especially the one I see in the mirror. But friends, if we believe the gospel, what we're about to celebrate at this table, you know what this table is a weekly reminder of? I am here because of the grace of God. I have been blessed with a wonderful wife I did not deserve by the grace of God. I've been blessed with four wonderful children and their families, 11 grandchildren, and I know if it had been left to me, I know my heart. I would have made shipwreck of that and destroyed it all. And it's the gospel that I have to thank God for. I would have been a fool and would have had no reason to come here and celebrate any of this. And God saw fit not only to do that, but to give me the privilege to to study and open his word every week. Not because of something in me, but something in him. Do we realize that? If you embrace the gospel, friends, we have no reason for pride. So we're gonna come to the Lord's table which is the table of the humble king. And I want to remind you in just a moment, we're going to stand together and read. You know, there's a there's a thing going on here that you ought to be thinking about as you're reading this text. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, came to a place of humility because it was forced upon him. Jesus, who had far greater glory, and had every reason because Is this not the earth that I created? Answer, yes, you did. There was nothing here. You you come out and there it is. But he humbled himself. And because he did so, you and I are saved. That's the gospel. And so we're gonna come to this table to hear the words of the one who is the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar And to rejoice in that. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand. And we're going to be putting Philippians 2, 5 to 11 on the screen. And we're going to read this together. This is Paul's admonition to us. And I remind you, he's doing this because in the church, people were not getting along. And Paul says at the root of it all, it's pride. That's why we don't get along. And so he's calling them to humility. And he does it with these words in this example. So brothers and sisters, we're going to confess the faith through these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, Brothers and sisters, if you believe that, you are welcome to the table. Let's go ahead and be seated. And I remind us that as we approach this, again, Jesus humbled himself, and therefore he's exalted. And because he humbled himself, and notice he didn't just humble himself, he humbled himself to become a man. I mean, we think it's bad to be a human and become like an animal it's a far greater fall to be the son of God and take to yourself our flesh but he did that and then we find out even as a human he went lower still and he obeyed and he does and then even he receives the scourges and he takes a cross and at every moment he humbled himself even further and he did that for you and for me and for our salvation. So we're going to come to this table. If you are a believer, you are welcome to join with us. If you don't believe this, if all this seems crazy, then we encourage you, let it pass, because this table is a profession that we believe the gospel. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, go ahead and take the the little cup and open up to get the bread. And we will receive the body of our Lord together. Father, how great are your signs and how mighty your wonders. Your powerful word provides rain and snow to water the earth so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for us to eat. In our pride, we proclaim we are self-made men and women. But today, we confess this is utter folly and sin. For you give us life and breath and food and everything else. So that all we have is yours. Lord, we take this bread humbly, confessing our need for you to sustain us physically and receiving the provision of our Lord Jesus Christ to feed us spiritually. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, Like Nebuchadnezzar, we are often filled with pride at our accomplishments and will only recognize our impotence when you have humbled us. But you, Lord Jesus, who are in very nature God, willingly humbled yourself and you did this for us and for our salvation. Your blood was poured out, not for your sin, but for ours. Not to secure your place with the Father, but to open the way for us. So now we humbly lift up this cup, confessing our sin and our pride, acknowledging our only hope is through your atoning blood and freshly receiving the gift of your grace. Friends, take and drink. Let's stand together. I'm going to call out on the Holy Spirit to come and work in us, and uh, please join with me in my prayer. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you as the Lord and giver of life. As Scripture says, if you were withdrawn from us, all humanity would perish together and we would return to the dust. As the people of God, we openly acknowledge our need for you. We call out, rise up within us, banish pride, stir up gratitude, give us eyes to see, to embrace and to rejoice in the sovereign power of our great God. Empower us to walk this week as servants of the King and anoint our tongues so that we might proclaim the truth and call others to come. We ask this in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people say amen now may the god who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble fill your days with his grace and your nights with his favor until your life overflows with blessing so that you may be a blessing to others go forth in jesus name amen